Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word, providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections, so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. All right, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Palou, and uh, got a good show in store for you. Today we are going to be looking at some of the claims of Bart Ehrman, well-known New Testament scholar. You probably see him 
uh, more often than not, right around uh, Christmas and those kind of holidays, uh, Easter, dealing with the resurrection. He's uh, often on CNN, MSNBC, the History Channel. Uh, those guys love him because he definitely uh, is not a Christian in any way, shape, or form and takes a very skeptical view of the Bible uh, as well as the existence of God, miracles, etc. So he's wrote uh, quite a few books. Um, so we are going to have uh, our good friend Brendan Helms, who's been on before. We're going to have him come on the show uh, in about 25 minutes, and we are going to be looking at some of the claims uh, that Bart Ehrman makes as well. So we're going to be dealing with that. And uh, my beautiful bride is taking care of our baby, so she won't be on with us today. But we hope to be able to get uh, get someone to watch her during during the uh, day. So we'll be able to have uh, her come on and co-host with me a little more. It probably makes the show go better to have her on the air so you don't have to listen to my blathering continuously. But uh, she does a lot of the stuff behind the scenes and is busy answering emails and making the link and that kind of stuff. So we think, in fact, I think she's here. I think she wants to say hello. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I just thank you for joining us. And I miss being on the air with you, but uh, Baby Girl needs me right now. So we will, I'll be taking care of her on the show. But you are on Pro-Life Fridays sometimes and People can catch you on the same network, right? Yes, the same network. Fridays at the same time, um, dealing with a lot of pro-life issues and um, a number of different issues um, dealing with the sanctity of human lives. Yeah, that's right. Just, you know, real quick, we, we sometimes, you know, we normally don't do shows on abortion uh, just because the network that we're on does a lot of shows on abortion, which is a good thing. Uh, but we just want to also... Uh, bring other theological and apologetic issues. Uh, but we'll do some shows on abortion as well, because uh, in my opinion, it's a, it's a very important issue. It's the, the number one tragedy of the day, and uh, we definitely need to be speaking out against that. So anyway, um, glad you can join us today. Let me give you our Facebook pictures who are kind of wondering uh, if you go to our Facebook page, we're going to have a lot of our old past shows on there. So we've done a lot of different debates. We've done a lot of different um, shows. We've done a lot of different shows on uh, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as other cultic groups. We've also done a number of debates. Uh, we have done uh, the Mormon versus Christian view of God and, and have had Mormons on the show. We've had uh, some atheists on the show before. We invite callers. Of course, you don't have to agree with us to call in. And uh, we've done a lot of important shows. So Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse. Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse. Make sure you check us out there. A lot of, a lot of good stuff, all of our good podcasts. So. And one last thing before I kind of jump in uh, with about 20 minutes to go before our guest uh, the month of October, we are going to be dedicating to the Protestant Reformation, and we're going to be looking at several different issues, and uh, we're going to have with us as our guest uh, one of one of a lot of people's favorite, uh, Nathan Taylor, who has his 
I believe it's Masters of Divinity from Westminster uh, Theological Seminary, as well as a Master's Degree in Philosophy from Talbot. And uh, if you guys remember, he was on the show and uh, did the debate actually against Devin Rose on Sola Scriptura. Uh, Devin is a Catholic apologist, and uh, that debate caused quite a bit of um, quite a bit, a bit of uproar uh, amongst certain crowds. And uh, it was a good debate, and I appreciate Devin Rose coming on the show. I've told him he's got a standing offer. Uh, to come on the show at any time and uh, would gladly talk about these issues. Uh, we are a Protestant uh, show, though. We are a Protestant group, and so uh, we will be spending the month of October uh, because Halloween uh, was Reformation Day, as we celebrate. So we're going to be looking at several issues. We're going to be looking at the issue, the uh, issue of Sola Scriptura, I know we've we've done a debate on that, uh, but we're going to have uh, Nate share with us for about an hour, maybe a little more, uh, of what Sola Scriptura is, what it is not, and I'm trying to, uh, right now, actually uh, set up a discussion with a good friend of mine who is uh, Catholic, um, kind of a not, he's not a Catholic apologist for, you know, money or anything like that, he's not, he's not making a living at it or anything like that, but he's a, he's a sharp guy, he's a good friend, um, so I'm going to try and, uh, try to work out some details to get him on, and probably dedicate that second hour to a good discussion um, with them. And then a couple other shows we're going to be dealing with is the issue of justification. This is kind of the, where the rubber meets the road between, between Catholics and Protestants. We're going to take a, a good look, long look uh, at those issues and deal with them. So that will be a good time. As well as uh, we're going to be answering uh, a bunch of arguments against the Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura as well as Sola Fide. So it should be a lot of fun. And October 31st, uh, we are going to be, hopefully that Halloween night, uh, either we can, we're going to try and maybe schedule an informal debate with Nate and another Catholic or we will be rebroadcasting uh, the debate that we did uh, with Devin Rose. So we'll kind of do that on Halloween night, which ironically falls on a Thursday. So with that out of the way, I wanted to play a clip for a few minutes for you guys uh, from Frank Turek. And uh, this clip, you can find it on YouTube, it's called Faith is Not Enough. It's about four minutes long. And after it plays, I'm going to come back and uh, make several points on that. And then... Uh, about 6.30, I'll go ahead and bring Brendan Helms on. So go ahead and listen to this clip, and then we'll be back in just a few minutes, and we'll kind of dissect what uh, Dr. Turk is saying. Seventy-five percent of kids who are brought up in a Christian home, who are brought up in church... As soon as they leave the home, within a year or two after they leave the home, are walking away from the church, many never return. There are a number of reasons for this, but one of the major reasons is they don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. 
We've never told them why Christianity is true. Oh, we've told them that it's true, but we've never told them why it's true. We've never given them any evidence. We've simply said, believe. I, I go to a lot of churches and I usually start out by saying, do you believe this book is true? And people always go, yeah. And I always, then I ask, why? You know what answer, unfortunately, I get more than any other answer? Because I have faith. Because you have faith. Is that a good answer? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? You mean, the Muslims have faith, the Quran is true. Is the Quran true then? No, your faith doesn't change a thing about this book. Either this book is true, is true or not, regardless of what you believe about it. Does your faith change history? Will your faith change whether Jesus died and rose again? No, he either did or he didn't, right? Regardless of what you believe about it. Do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do all those people who don't believe in gravity float away? Look, there's another one. Come back. Come back. If you believe, you'll come back. No. Your faith doesn't change a thing about whether or not this book is true. The only thing your faith does is it appropriates the salvific content of it to you. It does not change whether or not God exists or whether or not Jesus rose again or whether or not this book is true. If I only have one message to give to somebody, for me, this is the message. Because I see so few people out there talking about why it's true. I hear a lot of people talking about that it's true but not why. So I'm going to talk about why. You guys ready? Here's what we're going to do. In order to show that indeed the Bible is true, the first thing we have to deal with is truth. What is truth? And does truth exist? In our culture today, we don't think truth exists. Or we say it's true for you but not for me, or all truth is relative. We've got to be able to deal with those objections if we're going to say this book is true, right? Second question, does God exist? We have to give evidence that God exists. Because if there is no God, then this book can't be a word from God, can it? You can't have a word from God if there is no God. So we're going to give evidence from outside the Bible that shows you that this book is indeed from God. That God exists. Thirdly, this book can't be true if miracles are not possible. If they're not possible, as many in our modern universities now teach, David Hume apparently for some has disproved that miracles should be believed, a great skeptic who died in 1776. A lot of people think Hume's arguments are good. They're not. But a lot of people think miracles are not possible. If they are not possible, then you might as well throw this book away, right? And then finally, and only then, we'll be able to look at the question, is the New Testament true? And you say, well, why just the New Testament? Because if the New Testament is true, the Old Testament's true. Why? Because if the New Testament is historically reliable and it shows us that Jesus really was God as he claimed to be, then whatever God teaches is true, right? That's axiomatic. Whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught that the entire Old Testament is true. So if the New Testament's true, you get the Old Testament thrown in. So we're going to do all these five questions. We're going to start with truth, then God, then miracles in the New Testament, and then so what? You guys ready to go? Let's go. All right, and that was a clip from uh, Frank Turek. You can find a lot of his videos on YouTube. And uh, he actually runs the website Cross Examined, 
which is a great uh, great website uh, for information. And uh, I, I told you guys before, actually went through the cross-examined uh, instructors academy. Uh, we've been promoting it uh, quite a bit on on our radio program. And uh, they really do a good job. They go to different churches and schools. They go to public universities. And they do their, their presentation of, uh, of the, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And uh, they do a great job. So anyway, you can find their website, crossexamine.org. And uh, if you go there, you can actually schedule uh, to, to have a speaker uh, come to your, to your church and uh, give, the, give one of the presentations or have someone uh, come to your school. They've got good uh, Ratio Christi, which is the kind of the college campus for apologetic groups. Uh, to where they can do a lot of those different talks. So go to cross-examine. Look, look those folks up. But let's look at some of the stuff he was saying in the video. I think he brings out some great points. He says 75% of college students who start off uh, being raised in a Christian home actually uh, end up becoming non-believers. Now, of course, uh, you know, I don't particularly believe they were – believers in the first place, uh, but the point is is that they're being brought up in a Christian home, and 75% after first year of college want nothing to do with Christianity. And we have to realize that it's, you know, the culture that we're in, um, it's very anti-Christian. It just is. Um, so when you go to the universities and uh, these type of things, you're going to be taught a lot of things that are going to really attack uh, the authority of the Bible and uh, instance on uh, things like origins, you know, where do we come from, how did we get here, what is our purpose, what are we made for, these type of things are, are not going to be answered uh, nine out of ten times from a, from a, I won't even say a biblical worldview, I'd say not even from a theistic worldview, but it's pretty much naturalism is kind of the dominant view. So 75% um, kind of want nothing to do with Christianity first year of college. And he brings out that it's, it's – and they've done surveys, and most of the time it is because they don't think Christianity is true. And let's, let's talk about that. Why don't they think Christianity is true? I can tell you from my experience growing up in a church, growing up in a Pentecostal a little Assemblies of God church, and uh, father was even a pastor, that you're not given a lot of answers as to questions such as, what about evolution? What about, uh, you know, how do dinosaurs fit in the Bible? What about the reliability of the Bible? You know, how do we know God exists? How do I know Jesus Christ it was even a real person? You know, and not under the you know, the same category as a, as a Zeus or something like that, right? How, how do I know that? And a lot of the times you just thought really given answers. And I don't th I'm not just picking on, you know, Assemblies of God or Pentecostals. I think this is a problem for most of the church, most of the Protestant church. I don't know about the Catholic church or Eastern Orthodox or the other ones, but speaking as a Protestant, this is kind of what you see. Uh, you go to, to the church, and normally the youth groups, 
um, are basically a holding tank with pizza. Not all of them. There are a lot of good youth groups out there, a lot of good youth pastors out there. But a lot of them, it is just a holding tank with pizza. And the kids are not being taught theology. They're not being taught, you know, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? What is justification by faith alone? How do I know the Bible is true? How do I know God exists? These things are just simply assumed that the kid is going to believe these things. And, you know, well, they, they may uh, for a while. But when they go to college and they are placed against someone like Bart Ehrman as their professor who destroys their foundation, that the Bible's not reliable, there's no errors and there are words, uh, that Jesus, uh, his words, uh, are, you know, are not authority or uh, have no authority at all and are not uh, the word of God. Well, how are they going to respond to that when they go to their science class and they're being told that uh, evolution disproves the Bible and uh, these type of things, right? And then they go to their philosophy class and they're being told naturalism uh, is the view that explains everything. How how are they going to respond? You know, just telling them to have faith is not it's not an answer and it's not doing them any favors. It's not equipping them at all. Yeah, we've had a lot of friends actually that have taken Airman's classes and you know, just saying I have faith doesn't make something true. And, and Frank Turk makes a really good point there when he's saying, How do you know that the Bible's true? And people in the crowd are saying, Well, because I have faith. But see if if faith makes something true or false, then what about Muslims? What about Mormons? What about Jehovah's Witnesses? Right? They all have faith, right? So first thing you have to do is kind of pin down, what do we mean by faith? I think sadly in in the, the, the world of Christianity in America, when you say faith, people just take that to mean this blind, you know, clueless, leap in the dark. Glue is kind of the ignorance that holds all things together. And as long as you say you have faith, then you don't have to worry about having decent answers. And that is just not the New Testament definition of faith. Uh, the, the New Testament definition, the Greek word pistis, is to trust. It's not a blind faith. You know, the, the Bible tells us in Isaiah, come, says the Lord, let us reason together. First uh, Peter 3.15, the apologist's favorite word, verse, right? Be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason of the hope that's within you. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Corinthians 10.5, demolishing arguments against those that oppose Christ. So Christianity is not this blind leap in the dark, right? There's good reasons to believe that God exists. There's good reasons to believe that the Bible is true. And that's really what this show uh, and several other uh, apologetic and theological ministries exist to to show. So having faith in something doesn't make something true or false. I was listening uh, recently to an interview with, with Bill O'Reilly and Richard Dawkins. And O'Reilly basically appeals to, well, it's, uh, you know, you have your faith, I have mine, and I have my truth, and you have yours. And, and Richard Dawkins 
called him on it. And he asked him. And Richard Dawkins is a, one of the well-known atheists, very outspoken, very kind of angry man uh, towards all religion, but especially Christianity. But Dawkins called him on it and said, well, how can it be true for you and not for me, right? Either Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus did not rise from the dead. You can't say, well, to me, Jesus rose from the dead. No, either Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus did not rise from the dead. Both can't be true. It's one of the first laws of logic, law of non-contradiction. You can't have something that is both true and false at the same time in the same sense. And so, uh, you know, we've got to think through some of these issues. Your faith doesn't change reality. Your faith doesn't make something true or false. If the Muslim says he has faith that Muhammad is God's prophet and that Jesus did not rise from the dead, does that make his his position true because he has faith? Well, most Christians are going to say, absolutely not, of course not. They're going to object to that, and rightly so. But you can't turn around and use that same type of argumentation for Christianity. Your faith doesn't make anything true or false. Either Jesus rose from the dead, or Jesus did not rose, rise from the dead. That is just, you know, a fact of, of, you know, how it is. So we need to be giving the students evidence. We need to be showing them that. Uh, well, actually, let me let me go through this outline that Frank Turk actually goes through. Is is uh, starting with truth, and this is really what kind of where you have to start. What is truth, and does truth exist? If there's no such thing as truth, then it's it's like uh, Bill O'Reilly and the other people say, well, whatever you, you know, whatever you believe, type of a thing. But we know that that's just self-refuting, right? We know either Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus did not rise from the dead. So truth, we would say, truth is that which corresponds to reality, or truth is is telling it like it is. If I say that I am on the radio Thursday, 626 Eastern Time in uh, South Carolina, that statement is either true or false. So truth is corresponding to reality. Truth is telling it like it is. But you have some that will say, well, truth does not exist. And these type of self-refuting statements, you got to kind of keep your eyes open. Uh, you'll see them because they pop up a lot. Truth does not exist. Well, what's the problem with that statement? If someone says does the truth not or truth does not exist, you ask them, is that true? Is it true that truth does not exist? Because if it's true that truth does not exist, then you you obviously see the problem. So truth certainly does exist, and to deny it is to affirm it, and it's actually self-defeating. And then the the third point is is does God exist? Because this is a big point. If God does not exist, then miracles from God cannot happen. Uh, and you're not going to have a Bible that is breathed and inspired by God. So you kind of see this approach, um, and we looked at this a little bit last week with Bill Maher and uh, Bill O'Reilly, and, and Maher is mocking the uh, Noah's flood, and he's mocking the resurrection. But that's because he starts with the presupposition that miracles can't happen. And miracles can't happen because, well, God does not exist. 
well of course if you start with the with the with the premise that God does not exist then it's not going to be uh you know a big surprise that you're not going to be able to to have miracles either so God obviously does, you know we have to give arguments we have to demonstrate and I think you can do that uh, and we've done several shows uh on that if you look back in our like I say facebook.com slash theology matters with the pollutants we've done several shows on um uh, general revelation and argue from uh, different cosmological, teleological, and even did a show on the ontological argument. So you can give good arguments for uh, the existence of God. So if truth exists and God exists, miracles then are at least possible. Because you think about it, what's the greatest miracle uh, of all? And some say, well, the resurrection. And that is a that is a you know important miracle and is a you know an incredible miracle. I'm not downplaying it, but the greatest miracle of all would be creation. And again, if you look at what you know the cosmologists and the astronomers say, the universe began to exist. It came into being. Once there was nothing, then you the universe sprang into being. And if you look at the arguments with the the different cosmological arguments. And there's you know several in that family. Um, then you can see, uh, I think you can give pretty good evidence that um, a spaceless, timeless, eternal being uh, did cause the universe to exist. So if truth exists and God exists and miracles are possible, and then the next step is to demonstrate that the New Testament is the Word of God. And that's going to be partly what we're going to be looking at today because the New Testament is often under attack. And so what we're going to do is we have our guest uh, on the line. We're going to go ahead and take a break for about one minute. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to introduce Brendan Helms, and we're going to dig into this issue. But it's important. It's important, folks, that um, we're giving our kids good reasons to believe that the Bible is true, that God exists, that Christianity is true. It's not enough just to assume that they believe this stuff. It's not enough just to assume that the youth pastor is going to teach them. Um, because, you know, a lot of times they're not getting taught. They're just eating pizza and and uh, listening to music or whatever. Again, I'm not saying this is true of all youth pastors. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but it really needs to be on the parents and the churches need to step it up and start um, and start being able to, to teach some of these important things. So we'll go ahead and take a break, and then we'll come back with our guest, Brendan Helms. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to His prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace.
welcome back to the show. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring our our guest on. He has been on the show before, actually. We've done some stuff with the uh, New Testament before. And a uh, good guy, smart guy. So I uh, thought, you know, we need to do a show. We need to do a show on Bart Ehrman, and we need to do a show answering some of his um, objections. So Brennan Helms is the associate pastor at Macedonia Baptist Church in Lincolnton, North Carolina. He is a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary. And I know his his focus is really kind of on the, a lot of stuff with the, with the reliability of the Bible and the New Testament. So, Brendan, are you there? I'm here. Good deal. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Good, good deal. Did I leave anything out there? You want to tell us about your family? Uh, well, um, see, uh, we do live in uh, Monroe, North Carolina. Uh, me, my wife, Chelsea, uh, daughter, Addison, and we have uh, another child uh, on the way uh, at the moment. Uh, not sure if it's a boy or girl yet, so, uh, but we, we are... Uh, Expecting uh, baby number two uh, end of February, beginning of March. So, well, that's exciting, and uh, oh yeah, definitely yeah. So exciting. We're, we're looking forward to that. So, well, good deal, man. Let's uh, let's kind of jump into the talk at topic. Sure. I know there's there's kind of a, a lot to to go over. Um, tell us uh, who is who is Bart Ehrman, and and why do right. we need to yeah. Worry about that. So yeah, that, so I think a yeah, quite a good place to start was just a, a little bit about uh, Dr. Ehrman himself. Um, uh, Dr. Ehrman, he currently is the professor of uh, he's the it's the uh, Gray professorship at the University of uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill. Um, primarily, he uh, focuses uh, his studies on the New Testament from an academic standpoint. Um, he studied at Princeton under uh, the noted and he's now deceased uh, New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger, who uh, uh, Dr. Metzger was a, uh, a very firm believer. Uh, might not agree with everything that Dr. Metzger said, but uh, you know, a very firm believer. Uh, previously, he, Dr. Ehrman, had uh, studied at Moody. Uh, I believe it was at, it was either Moody or Wheaton. I'm now off the top of my head, I can't remember uh, which one he studied at for his master's degree. Um, but at one point in time, uh, Dr. Ehrman was a, as he claims, a evangelical Christian, um, and uh, he, he's now an agnostic. Uh, and, and notably, I would say where Christians probably want to most be aware of Dr. Ehrman is his stance on the New Testament, um, where he, he he holds a position that um, uh, at least you pay attention to him um, kind of in his popular level books and debates and speeches is that we really uh, should not consider the New Testament um, as trustworthy. Um, again, very something that, you know, when he was um, as either at Moody or Wheaton that he, he did not endorse that position. Um, and uh, he, he has said that uh, largely his position began to change when a, a, a good friend of his um, – uh, passed away. I, I can't remember if it was it was some for some medical reason. I can't remember if it was cancer or something like that. Um, and and through that, it became to begin to doubt uh, whether God exists. And like I said, now he he is an agnostic on that issue of whether God exists or not. Um, but you know that, that that's kind of his story. And you know, one thing I want to say say about Dr. Ehrman, I have had the opportunity to email with him before. Um, and, and and as I've 
said to people before, I think uh, if Dr. Ehrman was at my house right now, he and I could probably sit down and watch a football game together um, and talk about life and have a great time together. He is He's very humorous. He's enjoyable to listen to. Um, but, at, but at a fundamental level, you know, we do disagree um, on rather uh, important issues. Um, so I, I think that kind of would at least give the listeners a good background as, on him and, you know, where he stands today and, and why we should um, – you know, we really should pay attention to him um, because of the fact that what? he is a very credentialed scholar – um, and and, I, and I do want I want to be honest with the with the listeners. Uh, you know, Dr. Ehrman has a has a PhD from Princeton University. Um, I have a master's degree. Um, so in terms of credentials, he is more credentialed than I am. But but I do think he does make some rather fundamental mistakes um, in his reasoning. Yeah, and there's there's people with the same degree as him that that in fact is. Um, right, 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 his, yeah. and of course, and of course you know, that's not saying that everyone with a PhD agrees with him. There are people right. with PhDs that fundamentally disagree with him. But, but yeah, I, I do, I do just want to be, right. you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to claim that he and I are on the, uh, the same playing field in terms <laughs> of our right. Yeah, he is. I'll tell you, he is, he is sharp. I've seen, seen several of his debates, and uh, man, the guy is, he is amazing. Amazing! I've got to see him debate live, and I've um, seen his debate with. Uh, I'll be honest, the one my favorite debate that I've seen him in was the one with James White. I don't know if you've got to see that one yet, Brendan. Um, I think I've seen clips of it. I've I've not watched the full that that full debate. Okay, I'll have to send that to you on YouTube. But it's man, that's that cross examination is it's intense because they are like two heavyweight fighters that can swing. Sure. Um, let me ask you this: though. What are some of the books that Dr. Ehrman has wrote that people, you know, can kind of look out for when they're, sure. and I or think maybe they, they want to get and one of the things I always like to, to one thing I always like to point out with Dr. Ehrman is, and as with many scholars, this is not something just on him. They kind of have two different categories of books. They have their popular level writings, and then their scholarly level writings. Um, I'll kind of I'll briefly mention his scholarly level works that that I'm familiar with. Yeah, of course he has various journal articles that have been in the Society of Biblical Literature, things like that. Um, he's written um, uh, his inter- I'll, I'll say for someone who wants to be aware of what your more liberal New Testament scholars are saying um, about the New Testament, his introduction to the New Testament is a great tool to have. Um, yeah, I, uh, I have that in my library. Anytime I want to know kind of what is a more liberal stance on a given issue related to the New Testament, that's the first place I go. Um, he actually, uh, there, he actually, the, a new edition of that came out in the last year or so. Um, so you, you know, it's a little pricier, but you can go get a, a previous edition uh, for a little cheaper. Um, uh, he has his uh, his primary work on textual criticism that he co-wrote with Bruce Metzger, who I mentioned previously. And this, this text, the, the textbook that they co-wrote together is kind of the, um, I, I would say it's really is a foundational text for the field of textual criticism. And for those that aren't aware, aware what textual criticism seeks to answer are is, you know, what, did the, what were the original words in the Bible? You know, originally what did it say? How close to the original can we get? Um, and uh, the, the work he did with Bruce Metzger there is a, is a pretty seminal text in that field. Um, and then you have his more popular level works, 
um, misquoting Jesus is kind of the one that I would say kind of really, really got hit, got him on the scene. Um, and in misquoting Jesus, he basically, if I kind of had to summarize it, is that the Bible we have today um, is uh, not what the original said. Um, we can talk about that, that stuff uh, in a little while. Um, he's written, um, let's see, um, he's written on the problem of evil um, recently. I wrote on that. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of that book off the top of my head. Um, he, he's written on, uh, he has his book, uh, Forged, um, which deals with uh, issues of the, of the of, uh, kind of the notion of forgery uh, in the New Testament that the that the authors of the New Testament really aren't who they're claiming to be, things along those issues. Um, so Jesus I, I would think those are kind of your – what's that? Uh, didn't you write the book Jesus Interrupted as well? Well, it, it was um, – um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something did along I, did I say misqu- Was it – hold on, I'm trying to remember. Was, I believe it was Misquoting Jesus, or maybe I'm – or hold on, maybe Misquoting Jesus was one of the books that was a response to him. But, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I think you're right on that. So – but yeah, so that was the book where it was talking about the the, the idea of the um, the the text we have today is not what it originally was, which as I said, that was that's kind of the one that really kind of put it really really on on put him on the map, if you will, at, at a popular level. Now that's not to say that as an academic he was not already on the map. Um, once he had published that book with Bruce Metzger as an academic, that really put him on the map. Let me ask you this, Brendan, because we were, we were kind of talking about um, what college students face uh, when they go first year of college. Walk us through this maybe a little bit. You're, say, you're a Christian kid. You've grown up in you know good Southern Baptist church. Um, you've not had a lot of questions. You've not had a lot of, of doubts, but you've not had a lot of training either. Mm-hmm. What what is a kid gonna gonna experience when they walk into a into someone like a Bart Ehrman's class and thinking that um, okay. some of the Bible is going to be affirmed uh, or... Um, sure. I actually had a, a friend of mine who uh, went to Chapel Hill, uh, set through uh, Dr. Ehrman's um, kind of what uh, intro New Testament course, if you will. Um, and this is one that I think is very an interesting observation to make about Dr. Ehrman. Is, and this, this the, the friend of mine who made this uh, statement to me, but confirm something that I had kind of on my, that other scholars have said and that I've kind of come to, is that the the academic Bart Ehrman is quite different than the uh, popular Bart Ehrman um, in his writings. Um, and the friend of mine even said that in the uh, in the class, he you know was he was he defending inerrancy by no stretch. Um, but he, but in the class he was uh, fairly fairly honest and um, you know fairly moderate in his in his class. Um, wow. Which if someone were to read his uh, some of his more popular level stuff and then you sit in his class you're kind of saying wow this this honestly doesn't sound like the same person. Now uh, the, the friend of mine said that the, after their last class he had one other lecture that he invited people to come. It wasn't a mandatory class. And he said that he was he was going to kind of be in, in his last lecture, he was going to give his personal take on a lot of these issues. Um, and in that lecture, you kind of began to see, from what, what my friend told me, 
the, the more liberal side of Bart Ehrman come out. Um, so, and I think this is something that a lot of individuals have, have observed with Dr. Ehrman. Um, and this actually, uh, there's a very uh, famous debate now between him, him and Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, where uh, Dr. Wallace really called Dr. Ehrman out on this, where his academic writings seem to contradict his popular level writings. Uh, in fact, in the wow. debate, Dr. Ehrman even makes the comment uh, in response to uh, Dr. Wallace, where he says, you know, I, I thought we were here to debate the inconsistencies of the New Testament, not the inconsistencies of Bart Ehrman. Um, but, but, wow. but it is something that is now, at least among academic New Testament scholars, is something that is very much seen and people are aware of, um, that he makes he makes certain claims at the popular level that he doesn't make at the academic level. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things where I think when people read his popular level work, you know, again, I think most people, and I don't think this is a poor assumption to make, is that the that someone's popular level writings would, uh, and I don't mean this in, in no way as it's meant as a, uh, a pejorative sense, but his popular level stuff is brought down to a layman level, his academic work. Um, and what many uh, individuals have said is that his popular level work and his academic work, uh, though they, there are some similarities, there, there's, a, there's a big gap there. Um, now, that being said, I think one thing that you're kind of a freshman uh, on the college campus will be exposed to is the kind of the popular level aspect of Bart Ehrman, uh, wh whether it's through their professor, because like I said, uh, many uh, many of your liberal professors would disagree with even the popular level stuff that Dr. Ehrman says, um, but they're often made aware of and given these proposals and arguments that Dr. Ehrman makes at the popular level. Mm. I know you recently wrote a book uh, also kind of defending the historicity of of Jesus. I remember it was probably sure, yeah. maybe two, two years ago or so, uh, the infidel guy, kind of a <clears throat> famous mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. Not famous, but, I mean, people knew who he was. Uh, he was an atheist, and uh, he was interviewing uh, Bar Ehrman, and, and he was challenging him on whether Jesus really existed. And I remember... About halfway through that interview, uh, the atheist Reggie Finley was like, "Man, you, you sound like a Christian apologist. You're using the same kind of arguments that they that they use." So, he's, yeah, I think he's pretty helpful, also in that aspect, as far as um, you get some of these people that claim Jesus never existed. It's kind of the, you know, popular on the internet. Um, so, I guess Air Airman is pretty good in that aspect as well to be able to use as our as our ally on that, right? Yeah, and I think that is one thing. That, yeah, it was kind of comical when Ehrman came out with that book. You, you kind of had your uh, your uh, hyper-atheist getting really upset by what he was saying. He was kind of like, well, wait a minute. We thought you, we thought you were on our side here. And, you know, I, I think Ehrman was kind of like, well, I am in a sense on your side, but I just think you're wrong. I'm, I do think Jesus absolutely existed. He was a human being. I'm not saying he's the son of God. I'm not saying his death atoned for sins. I'm not saying he was resurrected. But to say that he didn't live on earth is just contrary to history. Right. 
Right. I do appreciate that, you know, about him that he he's he's honest about that and you know, at least you can you can interact with the guy when he's when he's being mm-hmm. honest. Sure, absolutely. So. Like I said, you know, in, in the the times that I've emailed with him, he's never, in my experience, and like I said, there's been times where I've seen him debate people where this has not come across. But in my experience with him, he is a very, um, he's not he, he's not your uh, Richard Dawkins angry in your face type of individual. That's just not him. Right. We are thankful for that. We don't need any more of them. <laughs> well, let's look at look at look at some of the uh, some of the issues, uh, some of the claims that Bart Ehrman mm-hmm. make. What are what are some of these mm-hmm. popular claims that you're going to read in Barnes and Noble when you pick up well, his book? Probably, I, I would say the one that kind of is kind of the most famous one does relate to, um, like I said, that issue of textual criticism. The the text that we have in the Bible today doesn't reflect um, the original text. And one of the things that this is one of the things where as that Dan Wallace very much calls him out on is this discrepancy between his popular writing and his academic writing. So in his popular level stuff, he makes this claim that there's in the manuscripts we have of the New Testament. Again, the manuscripts are the are the are the copies that exist today. Um, there's 400,000 variants, meaning there's 400,000 disagreements um, among the text. Now, and he goes on to say that therefore that shows that we really shouldn't trust. What the that we have the original now. This is one of the things where there's some uh, there's honesty here, but dishonesty. The honesty part is that there are roughly 400,000 variants. That's that's that, that's accepted. And no, uh, your your anyone that is aware in the field would acknowledge yes, those variants exist. The question becomes, does that mean that we shouldn't trust the text? As many as, as in his own. Uh, uh, scholarly writings, he, he says, that doesn't mean we don't have a text because so many of these 400,000 are such minor, minor, insignificant variants. Um, you, know, you know, I'm just kind of coming up with an example off my head. You know, a, a, a word should have an alpha, and instead of having an alpha, uh, it has an eta, for example. Well, you know, uh, does, does that mean we can't know what that word means? Well, no. You know, that's a very minor uh, difference. Um, right. Um, and so but he takes this and says, you know, and you have people that will come along and say, well, hey, it has 400,000 variants. Well, the, pro- the one of the problems is that we have over 6,000 manuscripts. Well, I mean, if you have 6,000 manuscripts, again, these are copied by human beings, there's going to be some mistakes in them. And so to have in 6,000 manuscripts, to have 400,000 variants, the vast majority of which are these minor differences. You know, a scribe sees one word. You know, again, one of the the common ways that the the manuscripts were made is you would have someone reading the the manuscript, would have someone reading the text, and the scribes would copy it. Well, maybe they, they, they mishear the word. And so they write down the word they hear versus what the what the uh, the reader said. Well, that's very easy to figure out what happened, and that, that that's not major. Um, let me, one let of the me ask you this. Uh, yeah, let, let, let me ask you this because I I can hear people at home listening to that and saying, um, well, the Bible says you know if if even one word is taken out, then you know the plagues are going to come upon them. What, how, what do we what do we do with that? 
He what said that applies. I kind of had I kind of had some interference here on mine. What your question was? Say it one more time, please. Yeah, I was going to say I can I can already hear people at home um, as you talk about scribal errors. They're, they're thinking, well, you know, I thought the Bible was perfect. If even one word or jot or tittle is is uh, been altered, then, you know, we can't trust the Bible and the curses are going to come on them. What sure, do you say sure. to, the, what, to that? Right. And, and I think what that, that that there's a confusion there, and it's, it's not a, a bad thought to have, but it confuses the original text with the manuscript. The original, again, if you're going to hold to the doctrine of inerrancy, the original is what has to be perfect, not... The manuscript. Now, someone might say, well, if the manuscripts are completely flawed, then we don't have the original, so what good is the notion that the originals were uh, were perfect? No, that's a fair claim to make. Uh, that makes sense. I mean, you know, so what if the original was perfect if what we have today is, you know, uh, 60% in error? The problem is is that when, again, when you look at your, your truly scholarly, and this even comes out in his own academic works, we – Scholars in the field of textual criticism are convinced that our text is 97 to 98% accurate to the original, which is a very far cry from this, the, what Ehrman what says. And you even get this in your if – you, if you were to pull out a, a Greek New Testament, um, the, the USB, which is essentially the United, uh, the United uh, Society – or UBS, the United Bible Societies. You look at their Greek New Testament, or you look at the uh, what's called the uh, NA27. Um, they they'll have at the bottom of, of the New Testament. Um, they'll point out to you where they think the where, where they've identified textual variants, and they rate them A, B, C, or D. Uh, I think the rating is something along those lines. And A means we are very 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 certain what that this is. The original. Uh, B means, um, hey, we're kind of this. We're pretty certain of this. You know, we can't get, we can't guarantee it, but we're pretty certain. C is we're you know we're really, you know, we went with this. You know, we have a little bit better evidence than the other option. D is hey, we really don't know. There are very, very, very few of those D ratings, and one of the main individuals that contributed to this was the, the was that guy Bruce Metzger who co-wrote with Bart Ehrman his primary book on textual criticism. So it it is simply not being aware of the broader academic community stance on these issues. Um and, and again the people who hold there are people who are very liberal New Testament scholars who would agree with what I'm saying. Um you know, again, I mean, notably in Bart Ehrman's own academic works, he's going to agree with this. Great. Well, there you go. Then, so these these the claim of the four hundred thousand variants. Another thing, kind of, I was I was thinking as you say that um, you're saying, well, you know, the more manuscripts, the more um, the more variants. So, you know, Bart Ehrman, it's actually. You know, it's a good thing that we're able to find the manuscripts, and the more we find, the more we're able to demonstrate the reliability of the Bible. But also right. with that is going to come more variants. So he's kind of sure, using absolutely. it, you know, it's a, it's a lose-lose situation. 
Right. Well, and that's one of the things, you know, we look back at ancient history, you know, various documents we have. Um, the amount of manuscripts we have for the New Testament are, it's just drastically, drastically higher than any other book of antiquity that we have. And the 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 lesser than you know, let's let's say that we were uh, let's just take a random work of Plato. Uh, we'll call it Document A. Let's say that we only have two manuscripts of this document, and there's a variant. Well, we now have no idea what the original said because we only have two documents to compare it with. But if you have six thousand of these manuscripts, it's a lot easier to be able to figure out what the original said. Um, and another a very interesting study done by a professor at a Southeastern Theological Seminary, Maurice Robinson. Um, Dr. Robinson is an is a expert in textual criticism. Um, after Ehrman kind of came out with his uh, popular level stuff on textual criticism, he did a study uh, on this issue. And he took, uh, he took the manuscripts um, from the first uh, four centuries uh, after the New Testament. And then he did. A, he ran a statistical study on it. I believe it was like thirty, just thirty random passages. And in this study, within the first four manuscripts, he showed that the that there was no disagreement, none whatsoever, somewhere between eighty-five to ninety percent of the text. Now, if the errors were going to creep in, and they were going to be significant, it would be in those first few centuries. Because after you've had a first, after several centuries have come along, well, you kind of get this more established text that exists. And for, right. you know, as as Dr. Robinson shows, in these first, you know, few hundred years, uh, there's we're talking 85 to 90 percent, and I can't remember the exact percentage there, somewhere in that range, that they're in perfect agreement. So now we only have to deal with, and again, within just that, within those documents. We're talking a very small fraction where we even have to try to figure out what the original said. You know, there, there's really no thinking that's involved when there's complete agreement. Right. Yeah, so the New, New Testament is uh, – I just think people are just not aware of how much wealth we have of manuscripts um, and the ability to really check those – Check those things out. So let me do this. Let me give the uh, the number for people who are wanting to call in and chat with uh, Brendan. Uh, you don't have to have to agree. You can disagree. That's fine. <clears throat> Just keep it civil is all we ask. Uh, the number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine. Oh, seven. If you have a question about maybe Bart Ehrman or the reliability of the New Testament or some of those issues, feel free to call in. We would absolutely uh, love to hear from you and, and love to talk with you. So, that being said, let's go on to the the next claim. Um, Brendan, what are what are some of the other things that you're going to run into One with, of the ones with that Bart Ehrman? Very, very, yeah, I mentioned the notion of, of being forgeries. And again, by forgery, what, what Dr. Ehrman means is, you know, for example, you know, the Gospel according to Matthew, and what uh, Dr. Ehrman is saying is that book was not actually written by Jesus' disciple named Matthew. 
Um, and, and he holds this position with various New Testament documents. Um, but, but with the Gospels is where, where it's kind of most prominent, is that the, the four Gospels, the names that are assigned to them are not really the people that wrote those documents, which, of course, means, therefore, that in the New Testament we have no eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Um, of course, you know, even if Luke is the traditional author, Luke Luke never claims to be an eyewitness. Um, same with Mark. But sure, but Matthew, uh, if, if, if Matthew is who he's saying he is, he would have been an eyewitness. If John is who he's saying he is, he would be an eyewitness. But so based on Ehrman's thinking, there's no eyewitness to it. Well, and, and again, that, that's a pretty uh, serious uh, problem uh, for uh, Christians, if that, that is correct. But I think he, he does make... Um, a pretty substantial error in this, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, again, it's not to say he doesn't, he's a very smart man, um, but I think there's several pieces of evidence that really show that the the names associated with the gospel go back to the original. And probably, I think, one of the most prominent and most significant arguments for this idea goes to a, a German scholar named uh, Martin Hengel. Uh, in his book, The Four Gospels and the One Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Dr. Hengel is now deceased. He died fairly recently, actually. And what Dr. Hengel argues, and makes the, he, he, really, he, he presents first a piece of evidence, and what he says is, throughout antiquity, when a, a library of a city, let's just say Alexandria, again, the most famous library of antiquity, when they got a, a, a new book in, okay, and that book did not name to it. They would just assign one to it. You know, you know, they would just assign a name to it. Now, so let's say then that the gospels did not have this these original these names were not original to them. So what we call the Gospel of Matthew comes into your library and you put it on your shelf and you you give it a name. Well then I get the same document. Well surely the the odds are that when I assign a name to it, I'm not going to assign the same name you you gave to it. The problem is, is that when we look throughout these these ancient manuscripts, not every one of the manuscripts puts a name to the Gospel of Matthew. Not every one gives a name to the Gospel of Mark. But all of the ones that do, they agree. We don't ever find the Gospel of Mark having a different name assigned to it. So what Professor Hengel argues is the best explanation of is that the names went back to the original. Because if they weren't to the original, find among these manuscripts discrepancies as to who wrote them. It, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it would be a borderline miracle if all of these manuscripts had the same name, but these libraries were just randomly assigning names to them. A second factor along those same lines, it goes to the church fathers. The church fathers disagree on who wrote Mark, on who wrote Luke, on who wrote John, who wrote Matthew. There's no disagreement there. Now, again, if the names weren't original and they were just kind of randomly picking names, that really doesn't make sense. You know, and even further, you know, if you were – let's just say they were picking names. Why pick Mark? Why pick Luke? I mean, you really think about it in a, in a biblical picture. Who were these guys? You know, Luke, according to the Bible, was a companion of Paul. Uh, Mark, uh, tradition says he was a, a companion of Peter. I mean, where is the gospel of uh, you know the other disciples? 
you would at least pick another disciple of Jesus, someone who at least claimed to be an eyewitness. But we don't see that. Interestingly, you look at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has no, no stated author. And interestingly, the church fathers disagreed on who wrote Hebrews. You have some, some people say Silas did. Some people said Barnabas. Some people said Paul. Some people said, well, we just don't know. So clearly, when there wasn't a known author and they kind of speculated, they did disagree. But the fact that the church fathers don't disagree on the Gospels and that the manuscripts, when they state the author, because that's not to say that every manuscript has the author's, author attached to it, they're in agreement. So this is where I would go to Dr. Ehrman or really anyone that's going to challenge the idea that the, the Gospels were not written by who they claimed as what explanation do you have of this data? My, my explanation is that the names were original, that Matthew's name was attached to the Gospel of Matthew from the start. Luke's name was attached to the Gospel of Luke from the start. Same with John, same with Mark. I think that is, has a, a much better explanation of the data than the fact that they were anonymous. Because if they're anonymous, now you have to somehow come up with some explanation, and I don't know what, you're gonna, how, what your explanation would be, that there's this agreement. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to to kind of flush out some of the some of those issues because there's those are going to be common claims that that end up coming up quite a lot, isn't it? About the uh, you're not having the knowing who the authors and and that are. So it's we need to know how to adequately respond to that. One yeah, of the things I, I was talking about. No, go, go right ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, all, all I was going to add was, and I think a large reason for trying to discredit the, the, those authors is because if you accept those authors, you now have this problem that there are eyewitnesses, specifically in this case, Mark and – I'm sorry, specifically John and Matthew, and then you kind of – if you accept that Mark was Peter's translator, you have two and a partial with Peter and Mark being eyewitnesses to what they're claiming. And so now you have eyewitnesses who are saying, yes, we saw this man Jesus die. We saw this man Jesus alive again. Well, it's a lot harder to deal with that than, well, no, it wasn't the eyewitnesses. It was these people writing well, well after the fact. Let's, you know, a, a good, a good, probably a good point to be to, to, to jump on next then would be um, dealing with the issue of, of oral tradition. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I remember my my grandfather, he was an atheist. Um, he actually did come to Christ uh, about two weeks before he died. It was rather amazing. But I remember um, that was kind of the analogy that he would give is that of, of playing like the, the telephone game. Um, mm-hmm. explain, yes. explain the telephone game and, and talk to us a little okay, bit so about oral tradition. This is actually this claim is actually found in his academic works. Um, he does make this claim in his uh, introduction to the New Testament, where, where he talks about the oral tradition. And maybe I should probably be good to at least briefly explain the, what the oral tradition is. So we have this: whether you are a conservative or liberal, no one says that when Jesus died, they immediately wrote the New Testament. Even with the most conservative dating, you have at least uh, a 20-year gap before. I mean, that's at a minimum, a 20-year gap before any of the New Testament is written. And then you have the Gospels where even, again, on a conservative dating, I mean a very conservative dating, you're talking 30 years before they're written. 
And so clearly, uh, according to the New Testament, Christianity was spreading before that was written. And so all of these things were passed along in, in what, again, what we would call oral tradition, or it was passed along in a story format. Um, again, yeah, I, I think a good analogy is, and we, we probably all can think about times where, you know, we're sitting around when we were kids with our grandparents, and our grandparents were telling us some story about their childhood, all right? Um, you know, something that they and their, you know, I, I think about, you know, my, uh, my, my grandfather is now deceased, was, you know, telling me a story about sometime where his, uh, he and his uh, older brother, they got in, it was some ridiculous story about they got in trouble for uh, hurting the family goat. You know, and that, that's kind of the idea. You know, it's the, the community is sitting around and they're sharing these oral stories. You know, it's not written down. And so what Professor Ehrman, and this is a very common line of thought, is that this oral tradition got distorted before it was written down. And it was distorted because when they were passing along these stories, it was much like the game of telephone. Now, we're, all from, we're probably all familiar with this game of telephone. Uh, from when we were kids, you know, I, I can think back to, you know, doing it in school or at birthday parties where one person uh, says a sentence to the person to the left or right of them, and then you pass it around the circle, and you're going to get a whisper in the person next to you. By the time this, the story gets back to the original, it's so different than what it originally was. And, of course, you know, in school it was probably because of someone like myself would think it was funny to change the story purposefully just to make it funny. But so that's basically what Professor Ehrman says is what's going on with oral tradition. It's just this story – the story gets distorted to this just like the childhood game of telephone. Now, there's, there's a few things that have got to be pointed out here. I think largely uh, that's just anachronistic. And by anachronistic, I mean it just does not fit with, with what history uh, tells us about oral societies. I think probably one of the most fascinating uh, things I, – I, I wrote a paper on this issue – one of the most fascinating books I read was uh, by not a biblical not a biblical scholar, not a historian. Um, the, the man's name was uh, Jan Vancina, and uh, Dr. Vancina, I believe, he was a professor up in like the North Midwest, and he was actually a uh, he was a sociologist slash anthropologist who did work in Africa. And what uh, Professor Vancina showed is that again in these African tribes that he actually went and lived with, they they didn't have written history. But he lived with them and studied them for like I think like 15 or 20 years. And what he observed in these tribes was that their oral stories were consistent. They didn't change. Now again, he's not trying to say that you know they had it was word for word the same, but the general storyline stayed the same. So here we have in a very much a modern day example of where you have these oral cultures where their stories are not distorted. And the reason was because they valued and protected these stories. Uh, one of the things that, doc, that uh, Dr. Vancina observed is that in the societies, you had, you had people who were responsible for correcting the errors. So they were, you know, hey, if, if I, let's say you're the person in our society that's responsible for correcting the errors, and there wasn't just one, it'd be multiple people, and you heard me telling the story and I told it wrong, you had a responsibility to correct me to ensure that for future generations the stories, the, his, the history of our culture, our society, remains. And so I think when Dr. Ehrman says this, it's, just, it, it's, it's taking a very modern-day view of, of how this works. And one of the things that, uh, Dr. that when Dr. Vancina, when he talks about these African cultures, that is not analogous to the Christian communities is that he that, – 
because of the fact that the the African communities they're passing along history uh, that's you know past that's been well passed, is that the Christian community early on would have had eyewitnesses to correct it. You don't just have these protectors. You have people that actually could have said, wait, that's not how it happened because I was there. So you do have these protections in place. And this is one of the things that uh, Richard Balkum in his book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, he points out, is that the apostles and disciples, they began to commit these stories to written text when their lives were coming to an end. When the apostles and disciples began to die and those protectors were beginning to die, it became necessary to write it down. So it's not the case that um, um, there was just this long, long time period of just this long, elaborate childhood game. But in these cultures, like you would have found uh, in the early church that were largely oral, they took – they took this much more serious than the childhood game of telephone. And you also have the fact that there are they're protectors of this tradition. Another, another factor that I, I, that I think is important to make is in our culture today, you really don't have to have that great of memory. Um, for example, you know, when you contacted me a couple weeks ago about doing this show, I immediately put it in my calendar on my, um, on my smartphone. And I got, a, I got a reminder that hey, I was supposed to come on the air with you this afternoon and earlier this morning. I didn't have to remember what time. I didn't have to remember the day. My phone took care of that for me. Well, obviously, back then, you didn't have that uh, luxury. If you were going to remember something, you had to commit something to memory. So I, I, one of the things we can observe historically is that people in that culture, I think, had, a, had better memories than people do today. And we actually can observe this in Jewish culture rather uh, start, uh, rather starkly, in that there's there have been it's been observed or recorded that there were m- several Jewish rabbis who actually now again I grant that the rabbis would have been trained professionals, but they memorized the entire Old Testament. You know, I mean, you think about wow. your normal Old Testament to say that that had, was committed to memory is amazing. So I, I do I just think that the, the observation that he makes, it's it's. It just does not accord well with how those societies, those cultures, dealt with oral tradition. And his, his, you know, hey, if 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 we were passing along oral stories today, you know, that of course, you know, hey, you know, go on a fishing trip with a group of guys and ask them how the fishing trip went a couple months later. You know, they went from catching catching a six inch trout to a two foot trout. Um, so that very well may be a, a fair challenge to an oral tradition going on today. I just don't think that challenge really fits well with ancient cultures. You know, I, I was going to say, too, Brendan, I was just thinking, you know, um, even today, um, not so much with, with Christians, but with Muslims, you have Muslims that will memorize the whole Quran. Sure. Granted, it's only, you know, two-thirds the size of a New Testament, but still, they, I mean, sure. they memorize the whole Quran. So, I mean, it, it, sure. it can be done. I just think... <laughs> You know, we're not used to – I think one of the other factors here that has to be considered, and you can observe this in the New Testament, is again, within the New Testament, there are what most New Testament Testament scholars consider pieces of oral tradition. And when you read them in the Greek, you'll see that they're they're, they're written in a way that would have been very easy to memorize. Um, There's a flow to it. You you kind of – 
you kind of almost think about, you know, it's a lot easier for someone to memorize a song today than to memorize a speech. Um, right. Because songs, they, they, they have rhythm to it. You know, there, there's something to a song that just makes it much more easy to memorize. And that's one of the things that, you know, again, the, the people of the first century weren't fooled. You know, they, they knew, hey, if we're going to ask the average layperson in the city of Corinth to know these things about Jesus and we just give them this long three-page speech to memorize, they're going to struggle with that. But, hey, if we condense it down into this very short, you know, couple-verse uh, uh, affirmation or creed that's written in a way that's easy to memorize, hey, that's, that, that it's easy to do. And so that's where I go back to. It's simply just the, the character that he paints of it does not, in my judgment, accord well with ancient historical practices. All right. The number to call in if you have a question about the reliability of the Bible or uh, some of the – maybe you've read some of Bart Ehrman's books and you've seen some of his claims or you've taken a class with him and some of this stuff has you troubled. Call in at 760-542-3907, 760 760- Five four two three nine zero seven. We'll put you right on. One of the one of the kind of the foundation of the whole thing um, is uh, Dr. Ehrman's denial of of miracles, right? As far as uh, kind of being most unlikely event, so kind of a David sure. Hume style argument. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if God doesn't exist, then miracles certainly can't happen. So, uh, how do we deal with that? Well, I think you know, this kind of uh, stands out in my mind, a debate that he did with uh, Bill Craig. I believe they were actually on the campus of Biola, and they were debating the resurrection. And Dr. Ehrman rightly observed that if the resurrection happened, it was a miracle, and he goes on to claim that miracles, by definition, are the least likely event. Well, and as you noted, that's, that's, it's very much in line with uh, a David Hume-type thinking, David Hume a uh, Scottish philosopher, uh, alive about, about, about around the time the uh, Declaration of Independence was signed. Uh, he's a very, very, very prominent uh, philosopher, very much influencing uh, one of the big names in modern philosophy and very much influencing contemporary philosophers. And basically that's what David Hume you know, kind of comes to, is that a miracle is the least likely event. Um, in fact, he goes as far as to say that um, miracles um, would not occur. I think the thing that should be observed is that philosophers to this day, and not just Christian philosophers, debate the merits of Hume's argument. A professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and I forget his first name, but it's uh, Dr. Ehrman, similar to to Dr. Ehrman, but it's Ehrman. He he has a book called Hume's Abject Failure. And again, Dr. Ehrman is no fan of Christianity, but he's also not a fan of Hume's argument. He goes through and shows... um, that Hume fundamentally fails in his argument. And he, he, he employs uh, what's called a Bayesian probability theory. I'm not, I'm not the biggest uh, proponent of Bayes' theorem, um, but he does show, hey, if you're going to talk about something being a, uh, the least likely event, well, what Bayes' theorem seeks to answer is how probable is an event to happen. And through this book, Dr. Ehrman shows that um, – given the criteria that, that Hume and someone like uh, Bart Ehrman might lay out, this, this argument does not work. Now, I, I think it is helpful to point out, and I think this is where if I was having a conversation with him, is I would simply reject his definition of a miracle. 
A miracle is not, by definition, the least likely event to happen. A miracle, by definition, is a supernatural event. Um, it is a uh, uh, kind of, I think, a good way to think of a miracle is it is um, bringing to a, a, a stop for a temporary time period. Time could, does, the, the time frame doesn't matter. But it's bringing to a halt the natural laws. Um, now, this, is, this isn't something we're overly just unfamiliar with. And I think a very helpful way to think about this is you think about it um, in living in the state of North Carolina. Um, we have what's called, you know, here, and I think many states do this now. Leading up to school, we have what's called tax-free weekend. In the state of North Carolina, you have sales tax. It's a law. You have to pay it every time you make a purchase. But on tax-free weekend, that law is suspended. It's not that the law is done away with, but the law writers have suspended that law for this one weekend so that people can save money on their back-to-school stuff. And that's really what a miracle is. It's a suspension of the natural law. And you think about, because on that debate, it was on the issue of the resurrection. Had, had God not intervened in that situation, the body of Jesus would have decomposed because that's just what happens when someone dies. But God suspended the natural laws related to death where the body decomposes and restored it to life. And again, uh, I know when you were, uh, before I came on, we are talking about how, you know, if there's no God, of course miracles can't happen because you have to have a supernatural being to bring about a supernatural event. So if there's a God, which is a separate discussion to have, the notion you, you really can't say that miracles are impossible. And I, I do think we can look at some of the main arguments that David Hume brought about. And kind of his most famous is he kind of had two arguments. His more famous one was called the, his soft version of his argument against miracles. And basically what he says is let's even say that miracles could happen. Let's just say they could for the sake of argument. He goes on to argue that there have been no miracles. And he says you know, the reason we can know this happens and he gives several different reasons. Um, one of them is, well, we always see miracles in uh, the people that are talking about miracles. It always happens in uneducated societies. Yeah, that's where you always see miracles. Well, that's just simply untrue. Um, for example, you look at the Apostle Paul. Paul was a very educated man. Um, uh, notably right now you have uh, Craig Keener. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar at Asbury Seminary, uh, educated in uh, England. He has a book he recently came out with called Miracles, and he, he actually details um, various miracle claims that are being made in Africa right now. And he went down to Africa. His, actually, his wife is from Africa. Um, and he, through interview uh, analysis situation, he details that there are miracles still occurring today. So here you have Craig Keener, very, very intelligent man, saying, no, miracles do so. So you really can't say it's among the uneducated. Um, right. Another claim he makes is that, well, you have – um, competing uh, miracle stories. Uh, for example, Christianity makes claims of miracles and other religions make miracles. And so he says, well, they just cancel each other out. Well, that's not true. That's just called bad historical research. You know, maybe, uh, let's just say the, let's say the miracle claims of, uh, 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 we'll say, Mormons. Let's say that those are historically correct and the ones for Christianity aren't. Well, then that means that the claims of Mormonism are true. They don't cancel each other out. 
we have to evaluate the claims individually. And that's the way we do historical research. Um, and I think, you know, and again, Hume has other um, aspects of his, of his argument. Um, but, you know, those are two of the main components uh, that he brings in play um, that really begin to show that his, um, his argument really is, is, is not as strong as an individual like Bart Ehrman claims. And, and one of the things kind of in somewhat of a defense of Dr. Ehrman is he's not a philosopher. Uh, he kind of just assumes that David Hume is right and that all philosophers agree with him. Um, but as I said, not all philosophers, and again, people even outside of Christian circles, disagree with David Hume. So I think it very much is just for Dr. Ehrman just not being familiar with what philosophers are actually saying. Um, and I, I think in that debate it was really interesting where uh, Bill Craig, again, Dr. Craig employed Bayes' theorem to show that it's not true that the resurrection is the least likely event to happen. And I remember uh, Dr. Ehrman uh, responding to Dr. Craig by saying, you know, yeah, as I said, it happened at Biola Seminary, and he, uh, he made the claim that if this if this was happening at a at a main a major university campus, we would be laughed out of the door for doing this type of argumentation. And Dr. Craig responded by saying, "Well, this argument was formulated at Oxford University." Again, <laughs> showing that Dr. Dr. Ehrman really just was, is not familiar with the philosophical arguments going on in that debate. Right. Well, that is that is good stuff. Let's uh let's do this. Let's take a break real quick for about two minutes. Okay. And uh again we're gonna have the phone lines open, seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven, seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven. Call in with your questions, uh and we will put you through to Brendan right away. If you have questions about the reliability of the Bible if you've read some of Bart Ehrman's work, maybe you're uh, kind of have some questions or confused in some of the stuff that's said, or even if you don't agree, uh, feel free to call in. We'd love to hear from you. So we'll be back in about two minutes. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologist. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book out called uh, Conviction uh, Without Compromise. It has a chapter in each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrines? Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So you're going to call it a, a building if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundations aren't there. Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult. 
Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, welcome back to the show. And we are looking at some of the claims from Bark Airman and... Um, we have on the line with us our good friend Brendan Helms, who's kind of walking us through some of these issues and some of the uh, some of the more objections that are going to be found uh, when you read his books. And um, you know, uh, Brendan, one of the things that um, that I, I think it was uh, one of the interviews that Bart Ehrman did on Unbelievable, uh, the radio program there in, in England, uh, which is a great show. Uh, people should should check out if you want to uh, hear a lot of different opposing ideas um, against Christianity. But I think it was his debate with uh, I want to say Richard Swinburne, uh, and one of the one of the things he pointed out was that because uh, it's like you said he went to Moody Bible College and uh, uh, was a Christian and went to Wheaton and these these kind of things. Um, well, let me qualify that. I wouldn't. My theology would say he was never a Christian. I uh, claim to be a Christian. I should say that instead. Um, but he said that it wasn't the text, it wasn't that stuff that actually uh, turned him away from uh, the belief in Christianity, but it was actually the problem of evil. Uh, help us kind of talk to us about uh, Bart Ehrman's views on these and how we can respond. Sure, and you know one of the things with uh, Dr. Ermey, I mentioned at the beginning, kind of that, the personal story that he has with his, it was a friend of theirs. They uh, he had, and I, and I, I'm talking about, I can't remember what the sickness was, but it was cancer related. But anyways, the friend was uh, sick, deathly sick. That he and some of his fellow Christians they prayed for him, and the individual died. Um, and that's what sent Dr. Ehrman down this uh, path towards agnosticism. Um, and um, again, he, he writes this book, The Problem of Suffering. Uh, and again, as you know, in that uh, interview they did with uh, Richard Swinburne, um, and he said this elsewhere. You know, that's that's really what it, it wasn't the Bible that started him down this path, though that's clearly contributed to him at least staying there. Um, and so you have this issue of the problem of evil is really what it comes down to. And this is again one of those things where um, the problem of evil is, um, you know, a, a very tricky thing. Um, you know, one thing I'll note for Dr. Ehrman is he's not a philosopher. You know, the problem of evil is a matter of uh, philosophy, philosophical theology, however you want to place it. it. It's not an issue of biblical scholarship, though the Bible very well might have things to say on the topic. But strictly speaking, it's not a biblical issue. Um, and so 
to, to really answer Dr. Ehrman, you know, there's different aspects of the problem of evil. I think one thing that is often missed when people seek to answer the problem of evil is, is they often miss the emotional side of the problem of evil. You know, oftentimes, you know, when a, a family experiences a devastating loss, you know, someone wants to come in and offer a, a reason for why God allowed that to happen or try to defend God for allowing that to happen. And oftentimes, you know, that's really not what someone needs to you know, they are struggling with an emotional loss. And there's not an argument that can be presented to deal with that emotional aspect. And so that's one thing that has to be understood with the problem of evil, that there, there is the kind of academic intellectual side to it, but then there's also the emotional side. And again, they're not to be confused. You can't present an uh, intellectual argument for someone who's dealing with this emotional, you know, maybe a loss of a spouse or a emotional loss of a child. You, don't, you just don't answer it that way. And likewise, when someone comes to the table with this academic philosophical argument, well, you don't answer that in an emotional way. You have to clearly understand what their problem is. And That's a good point. Generally speaking, with the, generally speaking with the problem of evil, you kind of have today two um, common um, um, takes on the problem of evil for someone who's articulating it. One, you have the logical problem of evil. And the logical problem of evil is basically that given certain uh, classical attributes of God, that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, uh, he's all-good, that he can't be those things and allow evil to exist. So the idea is that, well, he, uh, if he's all-powerful, he could stop evil. If he's all-knowing, he knows evil is going to come. If he's all-good, he would want to stop it, but he doesn't stop it. So therefore... God doesn't exist. Now, with that argument, I think that even if the argument is sound and valid, at best, all that shows is that maybe that God isn't one of those things. Maybe he's all-knowing and good, but he's not all-powerful. Maybe he's all-powerful and all-knowing, but not good. You know, you, you could take away one of those characteristics, and you still get a God, just not the God of uh, classical, traditional Christianity. Um, and which is what some Christians have said, too. You, know, you have Christians who say, well, God, you know, he doesn't know the future, absolutely. So that, 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 of course, is a response, not the one I would choose to go with. Um, but in response to that, I think there's a few things that can be done. Um, uh, probably very famously, re recently at least, you have Alvin Plantinga, who's offered what's called the free will defense, that given the world that we have, um, God is justified in allowing evil to ex exist because of man's free will. This is a very, very common response people give today. And it's actually largely because of Plantinga's argument that most philosophers don't use the logical problem of evil anymore. Um, I think for people that use it, they're just not familiar with Plantinga's work. Um, but then you also have, you know, I think once you go back to um, you know, Thomas Aquinas. Um, and, you know, Aquinas, um, he, he doesn't view evil uh, kind of the way our modern philosophers uh, do. Um, you know, he, he kind of looks at it that God... God doesn't have moral obligations uh, the way we do, um, but God is good, um, and given the universe that God has created, um, evil is going to happen, um, but that doesn't mean that that is a somehow makes God guilty of anything, and it also doesn't mean that God's not going to do anything about it. 
because that, that's kind of your one thing. As I said, most philosophers don't use that argument anymore, mostly because of Plantinga's argument, this free will defense. Kind of your more uh, accepted argument today is kind of this idea of that saying, well, fair enough, God might have good reason to allow some acts of evil to exist. You know, he allows evil to exist because man has free will, and by man having free will, man can love God. Um, by man having free will, man can have courageous acts. You know, if you don't have free will, you know, is it, is it courageous for a man to save a to save a baby that's about to die? Well, no, because he didn't choose to do it. So by God allowing this, sure, there's, God has good reason for some acts of evil to exist. But then individuals come along and say, well, but there's certain acts of evil that God wouldn't have a reason to exist. And this, this argument was uh, kind of really put forth by... Uh, Got a philosopher at Purdue, William Rowe. And Rowe basically says, you know, that he kind of paints this picture of that. He says, there's a, imagine there's a deer in the forest. And there's a forest fire uh, out in the middle of nowhere. You know, people know the forest fire is going on, but no one even knows that this, this deer exists, besides God. Right. This deer gets caught in the forest fire, gets burned, doesn't die immediately. The deer suffers for many days and dies. No one ever sees this deer, no one comes across this deer. And so what William Rowe concludes is this is an example of where God would have no reason to allow this act of evil to exist. So it's most likely that there is no God. Well, with that argument, again, I, I kind of see the appeal to it. But the only way that anyone can make that claim is if they themselves are all-knowing. Because if you're not all-knowing, you can't say there was no good reason. Yeah, you know, I, I could speculate as to why there were good reasons. Maybe if there wasn't the forest fire and the deer doesn't die, the deer uh, runs across a highway and two families get in a car accident and die. Now, do I know that was going to happen? No. But likewise, the person bringing the argument doesn't know if is or isn't going to happen either. The only way to be able to know that there wasn't good that came from it is if you are all-knowing yourself, which, of course, the atheist isn't going to say they're all-knowing or the agnostic isn't going to say they're all-knowing. The only person who would be all-knowing would be God. Um, so the only position, that, the only being that would be in a position to make any claim on this situation would be God himself. So this is where I think that it, this is, again, very similar to the issue of miracles where – Dr. Ehrman just he, or he's not he's not a philosopher. Um, he's not really aware of what other philosophers uh, are saying on this issue. Now again, that's not to say that uh, yeah, there are philosophers. Um, again, I noted uh, William Rowe just a minute ago, uh, who is not a Christian, who is convinced by um, you know, he's the one that made the argument, and thus far he's not converted to uh, any type of uh, theism or deism whatsoever. Uh, so it's not to say that you know all um, philosophers uh, are con are convinced by what I just said, but what I think it does show is that with uh, Dr. Dr. Ehrman, these are things he's just not familiar of because of the fact that it's, it is outside of his field of study. Yeah, and that's that's one of the problems is you get guys like him or Dawkins who. You know, they have an area of expertise in one area, and then they step outside that and start writing, you know, books on on philosophical issues. 
So sure. with, the, with the Dawkins, he might be, you know, in his field when he's writing, you know, the blind watchmaker or something like that, even though that is full of philosophical presuppositions as well. But, you know, that's kind of his field. But I think a lot of the problem is because they're such, you know, popular kind of talking heads for atheism, people respect Bart Ehrman on his work in the New Testament and give him the equal respect in, you know, the problem of evil and philosophical sure. issues when guy is just not at all trained in that area. Right. And, and that, again, that's, you know, I think Dawkins is a good area. If we're going to sit down, my, if I was to you know, opportunity to sit down with Professor Dawkins, you know, there's going to be certain aspects of biology that I simply am not in a position to challenge him on. Because I'm not a biologist. I'm not a, he's a zoologist, but he, you know, he definitely has extensive training in biology. Whereas I have, I haven't had a biology class since I was a sophomore in high school. So I'm not in a position to really deeply engage him on those issues. And if I, and if I were to be sitting here talking about uh, matters of biology, he would, I think, in a fair position to say to me, well, you're speaking on an area outside of your training. Again, that's not to say that I'm just absolutely wrong, but he would be right in that. Um, right. And I think that's one of the things that is often missed is assuming that, again, they have, because they have a, a PhD is held by this individual, that they're now in a position to make claims in all of these different fields. And that's just you know, simply not the case. I mean, you could be the most brilliant New Testament scholar ever alive, but it doesn't mean you're good at calculus. It doesn't mean you're right. good at chemistry or physics. Um, you could be terrible at those. In fact, you know, you, you know, uh, uh, one of the things, you know, my, my wife's an elementary school teacher, um, and you know, she talks about how all the time you, you'll see kids who are really, really, really strong in one area, but they're incredibly weak in another area. So just because a PhD is held doesn't mean they, you know, again, for all we know, um, you know, in this other area, they did miserable in school. Yeah, I'm thinking of Stephen Hawking, you know, he's supposed to be like the smartest guy in the universe. And, uh, you know, the history, I think it was, it was either History or Discovery Channel did a whole series with him. And it was like, I mean, it made the big time because Stephen Hawking sure. said there probably is no God. And sure. uh, he came out, I'm trying to remember the book that he came out with. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's these guys that are just not, you know, experts in that area. So we shouldn't right. revere them with, uh, I mean, respect sure. them as people, but not respect them scholarly right, when it comes definitely. to issues like, like that. So and we'd probably both agree. Wouldn't wouldn't you say that the problem of evil is probably one of the biggest objections to the Christian faith, isn't it? Absolutely. I I, I would agree with that. I think that um is probably the the single greatest intellectual challenge to the historic Christian faith. Um there's no doubt about that. Um you know, and to, I think when, when we kind of sweep that issue under the rug, we, we don't do any favor to anyone by doing that. Right. Very good. Well, let's let's keep going. We got about oh, 15 minutes or so left. One of the other talking about biggest claim or biggest uh, objections to the Christian faith. This one comes up all the time. Bible's full of contradictions, the Gospels are full of contradictions, therefore we should not trust their accounts. How do we answer sure. that? And, and I think if, in looking specifically at uh, Dr. Ehrman, um, the primary area he brings us up with is the Gospels. And, you know, as you think, you pretty much put it as simple as possible. Um, he 
claims that there are contradictions in the Gospels, um, so therefore we should not take their testimony seriously. Now, there's different ways to respond to this issue. The first, and I'll kind of go into this in different, different looking at the different responses. The first response is by telling him, okay, are contradictions. How does it follow that because there are contradictions, we therefore should throw out their testimony? You know, imagine a courtroom scene. You have a couple, let's say there's a, a couple eyewitnesses uh, that have claimed to have seen a murder. And one of the eyewitnesses said, well, the individual, uh, the, the defendant stabbed the victim with a knife in his right hand five times. The other says the, the, the defendant stabbed the victim in his right hand uh, three times. The other says the victim or the, the the defendant stabbed the victim with his left hand five times, and the other person said that you know hey he stabbed the victim. I'm not sure how many times it was. Well, there's one thing that they're all agreeing on. Yes, they agree, they disagree on which hand he used and how many times. But none of them are saying he did. The victim did not stab, or the, I'm sorry, that the defendant did not stab the victim. They are universally agreeing on that. I guess. I almost had a very, a very comical time where uh, Dr. Airman went on the Stephen Colbert show and effectively um, Stephen Colbert very comically points us out to Dr. Airman by saying, you know, um, you know, it's not like – he says, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It's not like any of the Gospels are saying that Jesus didn't die. And he said, no. He said, and it's not like any of them are saying he didn't rise from the grave. He said, no. And he says, well, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and says he's the son of God, what do you call it? Um, and again, it very much you know, again. I, uh, I'm not 100 percent sure on Stephen Colbert's theology, where all he stands on things. But it's a, it's a fair point that just because there are contradictions, and again, I'm going to make the case in a minute that there's not contradictions. But even saying there are, that doesn't mean you just throw out the testimony. Right. No, no exactly. historian should do that. You have to evaluate every claim. Now. There are, of course, times in ancient history where we have discrepant testimony, and we have to say that, well, because of the discrepant testimony, we can't know with certainty what happened. Of course, that's a legitimate position to have. That's fine. But it's entirely different to say, well, because there are conflicting testimony, therefore we have to throw out. That, that, that argument, the conclusion just does not follow from the premises. It's just not there. At best, what that does, I think this is uh, something that uh, many uh, Christians have noted, is that at best, even if Dr. Ehrman is right, all that does is deny the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, I hold to inerrancy, but let's just – if I was talking to Dr. Ehrman right now and he were to say to me, now, if I were to, if I were to say there are errors in the Bible, but I believe that Jesus uh, died, that he rose from the grave – and that that uh, was a sacrifice that atoned for my sins, and I believe in that, am I saved? I would tell him, yes. Again, you don't, again, I think there are problems with denying inerrancy, but that's not a matter of salvation. So one could say to Dr. Ehrman, you know, okay, I'll accept, I'll accept what you're saying right now, but that doesn't mean that he didn't die on the cross, that he didn't rise from the grave, and that this wasn't a, a sacrifice that atoned for mankind's sins. That is an entirely separate issue, and I think this is one thing that I, in uh, Mike Lacona's debates that he's done with Dr. Ehrman, he's pointed out well to him that he, Dr. Ehrman doesn't seem to get it, 
um, is that just because um, there were there are contradictions. Now, uh, Dr. Lycona seems to kind of go back and forth on if there are or aren't contradictions in the Bible. Um, but just because there are doesn't mean we can't trust them, at least for the most part. Um, right. Very interestingly, uh, even in one of Dr. Lycona's debates with Dr. Uh, Ehrman, uh, he points out that in in his in Dr. Ehrman's own works, he says the best witnesses to the life of Jesus are the four Gospels. They're the best ones. So, it, you know, it's kind of this, again, I go back to the notion of him being of the popular Ehrman versus the scholar Ehrman. Um, even he concedes that the best eyewitness testimony we have about the life of Jesus are the four canonical Gospels. Now, that being said, I would take the position that there are the, the, the contradictions that he points out, at least the ones that I've seen him identify, are not apparent, are, are, are only apparent contradictions. That right. They, maybe when you sit, maybe when you sit down and read it, you're like, "What? That, it seems that they're disagreeing here." And probably one of the most famous uh, that I, I can always, that I think of. And it's not to say there's not others, but I have, you know, if anyone wants to, wants a good resource on looking at these, I think of. Uh, um, Bible difficulties written by uh, Tom Howe and Norman Geiser is a good good one to check out. Of course, we could, if we were to go through all of those, we'd be here for the next couple of weeks talking about them. But one of the most common ones I think is the idea that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that Jesus died and the Passover had already happened, whereas John seems to imply that when Jesus died, the Passover had not happened. Well, of course, both of those can't be true. You know, uh, Jesus can't have died before the Passover and then also died after the Passover. Um, it's impossible for both of those statements to be true. Right. Well, I think one of the things that we have to look at for these apparent contradictions is um, you know, looking at broader historical testimonies. There's something in broader history that might explain what's going on here. And I think with this, there definitely is. Uh, Harold Horner, uh, he, I'm not sure if uh, Dr. Horner is still alive or not now. He was, uh, he, he was, if he was, whether he was, whether he's alive or wasn't alive, he was at least at one time a professor of uh, New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he uh, writes um, and, and explains this issue that one of the things that we know from history, from history, you know, this is just an accepted statement of history, is that not all of the Jews agreed on when a day started. Some Jews said that, well, the new day started at sunrise. And some Jews said the day started at sunset. Well, so obviously you're going to get uh, a difference of what day it is, depending on who you're talking to here. And he explains that the Jews who lived in the region of Galilee, which would be where Jesus was from, most of the disciples are from, they, they, they had this tradition that the day started in the morning at sunrise. The Jews in Judea, notably in Jerusalem, they held to the day started at sunset. And eventually that does kind of become the accepted position, um, a very well accepted uh, tradition there. So you have in Jerusalem thousands upon thousands of people. People estimate that there were hundreds of thousands of people that would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they would all have to go to the temple for the sacrifice. Well, if you've got to get in all of these sacrifices – in this short period of time, you're going to have a problem. The problem being you're not going to get them all done. So what Dr. Horner suggests is that the 
the powers that be in Jerusalem allowed the, uh, the, the, the Jews from this northern region, the Galilee region, to partake of Passover earlier, because, again, they said the day started earlier, as a simple pragmatic solution. Because if they didn't do that, well, then they were going to have the problems of completing all the sacrifices. So Jesus partook of the Passover. He did do that, and the synoptics are right in that, because they, they started the Passover day before the Jews in Jerusalem did. But if we notice in the Gospel of John, it's talking about the Jewish leaders who were from Jerusalem. So they had yet to partake of the Passover. They hadn't taken, partaken of the Passover yet because they were of this tradition that the Passover started at sunset, in a 12-hour difference. Sure. So when John records that the Passover hadn't happened yet, John is writing, again, John's writing roughly in 90 AD, by the time that that, 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 uh, that way of reckoning the day was well accepted. And so he's simply recording it from the standpoint of the people living in Jerusalem. So it's, once we bring in this broader testimony of history, we see that neither, neither of them are false. It all comes down to this issue of some Jews had the day starting at sunrise, some Jews had the day starting at sunset. So you have this, you know, this is what explains why John says this and the three synoptics say the other. And again, there are, of course, other uh, supposed contradictions. I do think that is one of the more famous ones um, and more often heard ones. Um, that, you know, once you take that evidence into account, it very quickly explains, oh, well, that's why they're disagreeing. You know, uh, the notion of when a day starts, that, that's, that's, you know, that's a cultural thing. You know, it's, it's not like the sun tells us now a new day is starting. Isn't it? There's not an objective standard for it's now a new day. Yeah, and it's it's going to be hard to even show, I mean, a contradiction. It's going to have to be A and not A. There's a difference between right. what someone may perceive as an inconsistency and a, and a contradiction. Sure. sure. So good, good, good point on that. Tell you what, man, we got about – uh, two and a half to three minutes left. Close us out. What do we need to know about Bart Airman? Um, what's maybe some resources we can get if, if we're wanting to go deeper? Sure. Um, well, I, I think, I think a, a great tool that really every Christian should have is making a small investment into a, a good introduction to the New Testament, and likewise, same with the Old Testament. Uh, with the Old Testament, I, I generally uh, recommend Gleason Archer's um, introduction survey of the Old Testament. Great resource. Uh, on the New Testament, um, I, uh, my uh, preference, and again, this is not this is preference. There, are, I have others. Um, I think I have a four or five introduction to the New Testament in my library. But a really good one, I think, is the introduction to the New Testament by uh, by uh, Carson Morris and. There's a third author, and I'm drawing a blank on his name, but you know, those, those, with those you know, three authors, if you can get those two, you know, you'll, you can't, I can't imagine there's another introduction by the New Testament by those two guys. Uh, they happen to be two different guys. Um, so I, I think having those introduction to the New Testament are really good. And again, those are by conservative Christian scholars, um, and you know, they deal with these issues that Dr. Ehrman is talking about, and they are scholars, and they are uh, well-accepted scholars. 
Um, these aren't just, you know, some guys who, you know, uh, had some good Sunday school training and now they're going out to write. You know, they are PhDs. Um, they're writing major academic commentary. They're writing journals. And so I think for this, for this issue, that those those type of things would be the main resources I would recommend. All right. Well, Brendan, we appreciate having you on the show, and uh, I appreciate congratulations. the opportunity. Yeah, congratulations right. again on uh, the little girl coming. I, you Thank know, you. I just had one, and man, they're they're yep. a lot of fun. But you, you have a little girl already, so I don't need to tell yep. you that. So we will right, have you back on again. All right, All right man, I appreciate it. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. God bless. Yeah, All right, well, it's good buddy Brendan Helms, and uh, you guys can get the show. It will be uh, available on podcast right away, so you don't have to wait for that. It'll be probably right after the show. It should be ready. Share it on your Facebook page. Get the information out. Uh, you know, you never hear us ask for money because we don't make a dime doing this show. And, uh, you know, it's a labor of love. The people that come on the show, they don't do it for money. Uh, they do it because, you know, they believe truth matters. And we want to get the truth out there. And uh, we don't like seeing, you know, the, the Christian worldview under assault. And, uh, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. You know, we we need to be uh, showing the youth, showing the kids, showing even those in the church that there are good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. Now, it's true you cannot argue someone into heaven. I don't think anybody uh, is, is going to disagree with that. Um, however, it is just false to think that arguments can't win someone to heaven. And you hear this kind of, you know, people say, well, arguments don't lead people to Christ. The Holy Spirit does. And that's a false dichotomy. Christ can use arguments, uh, you know, and draw people through the Holy Spirit to him. So it's not, you know, logic, reason, or the Holy Spirit. God employs logic and reason to bring people to him. So just remember that. So next week, we're going to have our good friend Jonathan DeVito on. We're going to be discussing Mormonism. Uh, Be sure to be here for that. We'll be taking your calls, as always, and look forward to seeing everybody next week. God bless. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that test at all. 
nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure, standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death.